Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan. I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. Before we start today, I think that we should mention that recently, I theoretically get these notices, but I don't read them. But Michelle does, and so she sent it to me. And so even I know that we recently had our 100,000th download. La, 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 la. So that's a lot. I think that's a lot. I don't really know what it means, but thank you all. Thank you so much for downloading this lovely podcast where Michelle and I get to amuse ourselves. For It's been four years now. We're now in our fifth season. We get to amuse ourselves by wandering around the Middle Ages and just finding stuff. So thank you all. You're very kind. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have words of thanks or anything, Michelle? <laughs> Yay. It's cool. <laughs> Thanks for going on the weird rabbit hole journey with us. We have a lot of them, don't we, Jess? Oh, my gosh. And we have some today. Yes, we do. Today, we're having a special episode. The special episodes are the ones where we leave the time frame. And usually, we go into the early modern age. We go, you know, a little after the Middle Ages. This time, we're also having a spatial shift because instead of being in the Middle Ages in Europe, Where we are is after the Middle Ages in colonial America, because we want to talk about the whole not celebrating Christmas thing. And so our crime is that there were some new columnists at Plymouth in 1621 who celebrated Christmas. That's our crime. Luckily, no one dies in this episode, so it's very merry. We had a Christmas episode where Thomas and Beckett got all hacked to death, but no, no, nobody And last year's was pretty gory, too, even though we didn't think it was going to be. But what one was that? What did we do? We were right around Christmas. We were dealing with the young prince ended up with his uncle getting executed right after Christmas. I mean, it was it just came out of nowhere. Yes, because we were wanting to talk about the boy bishops and everybody getting drunk. And it kind of like went kind of like the Tudors had twisted it into a really bad thing. I'd forgotten that. That was awful. Nobody dies. Nobody dies in this episode. There is no one dying in this episode or even just getting tortured. Yay. Whole new thing. So it's common knowledge. As usual, I'm going to do all kind of contexty stuff because I just love that. It's common knowledge that the Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas or either for a while allow other people to celebrate it. But we thought we'd talk about this today and explore the context and whatnot. And as a special celebration, as I say, nobody dies. Yeah. The notion that Jesus was born in late December was put forth in the Chronographiae written by Sextus Julius Africanus, like CE, common era. He was a historian. He calculated Jesus's birth forwards from the 25th of March, which is the Feast of the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she has conceived Jesus. So nine months later, it's December. Ta-da! Obviously, that's when Jesus would have been born. But was Jesus born? Uh, There's a little sideline before we get to. We're celebrating Christmas. First, we have to talk about the date. Was Jesus born on the 25th of December? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. The shepherds grazing their sheep probably weren't grazing them in the winter. Maybe so. If it was a mild winter, there's various reasons to accept late December is the time. The the Roman Saturnalia was the 17th, and that's kind of close enough. And the winter solstice is the 21st, and that's kind of close. And the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, 
in memory of the retaking of Jerusalem and uh, rededication of the Second tem- Temple starts on the 25th of Chishlev. So that's kind of just December sometime, you know. And But a springtime, springtime birth for Jesus is held by Islam and um, the Church of Latter-day Saints and a bunch of others. Or maybe it's the fall. Maybe, maybe it's the fall because the Star of Bethlehem, if it was the conjunction of the planet Jupiter and the star Regulus, well, that occurred on September 11th, 3 BCE. So that might be it. And also, if you count backwards from Jesus's death, given how old he was, it would have been early fall to BCE. And, you know, and there's this tradition that he dies on the day when he's born. But this also, the whole thing about being conceived is sometimes when you're born. And so that's why you date it from the conception or going back and forth one way or the other. We don't know. We just don't know. But at any rate, by the time of our focus, colonial America, Christmas was on December 25th. And so we're going to go with that mostly. I'm, I have other things to say later. So by the time the Puritans came along, what was going when they existed? Christmas was celebrated by the Roman Catholic, the Anglicans and the Lutherans in Western Europe, the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrated on the 7th of January, still do, on account of the 12 days of Christmas, which is when the wise men showed up. Or wait, no, that's not it. It's because they were using the Gregorian calendar and the West was using the Julian calendar. Um, yeah, no, the 25th is the 25th of December is the Gregorian calendar. And yeah, that's the West. And the and the Julian calendar. Yeah, that's that's okay. We don't know. At any rate, they celebrate it on the 7th of January, which is both 12 days after Christmas with the wise men and also the correct day by the Julian calendar. The season of Advent, which is when you get ready for Christmas with prayer and fasting and meditation, was much more important in the Eastern Church than it was in the Western. I mean, theoretically you did this, but in reality, it wasn't like Lent where there's this entire body of literature built up around having to not eat much during Lent. It wasn't like that. Theoretically, you are fasting during Advent. Okay, so in the Western Church, which is the one the Puritans knew about, so we're going back there. By the 17th century, Christianity involved log burning, roasting apples and feasting, dancing, playing games, both card games and athletic games, and singing carols and going door to door demanding that people give you stuff for which you sometimes sing songs. In Wales, there's the Marilud, which would come to visit if indeed that was going on before 1800, which maybe it was, and I think probably so, because who else but medieval Welshmen would stick a decorated horse skull on a stick and go around singing and getting fed. So there's that. And the Puritans objected to all this. Because that's who they are. They didn't know about the Mari Floyd. Okay, they didn't know about the Mari Floyd. But they were really, they would really have disliked the Mari Floyd had they known about it. And so in England, there was a Puritan parliament for a while, because that was after the Civil War. And they'd cut the king's head off. And they banned the celebration of Christmas on account of it being too Roman Catholic. It was popish. So they banned it in 1647. Oh, it's wasteful and immoral too, because we talked about these Christmas customs in the in the Western Middle Ages. Besides the stuff I just mentioned, we had a whole podcast. This was last year, as we have said, where we talked about the boy bishops and the way in which throughout Europe, 
The Western Church celebrated Christmas by inverting social and gender structures. The choir boys would become bishops and men and women would change clothes and be the clothes of the other gender. And everybody got drunk and played games and danced and screwed around. Also, there was a lot of licentiousness. Even, and even the relatively mild wassailing custom, which is by the time the Puritans came along, which was mostly what had survived from the whole licentiousness. It's really a class inversion custom because basically you're going around say, singing a song and saying, give us a cookie to you know people who have them. So the Puritans didn't like that either because they were really all about, very much about strict hierarchies and keeping things tidy and getting drunk and playing games and screwing around are definitely right out. Okay, so when the Puritan Parliament banned Christmas celebrations in England, there were riots. Uh, London, Canterbury, and other cities... Canterbury was actually taken over by the rioters for several weeks. They went around pinning holly to everything and making chants about the king and how the king should come back, or basically another king since that one had had his head cut off. There were a bunch of writings in favor of traditions, which they called old English traditions, our old English traditions. Michelle, I believe, has something to say about this later. In other words, our way of life, you bastard Puritan, screw right off, is what this all meant. But then, of course, the royalty got reinstated in 1660, and then Christmas came back because the Puritans were out as a major political force, although they still have their influence on us. Sometimes we weep for America. But even before the Puritans took over England, some of them had escaped to the New World when things were going badly for them, and we know them as the Pilgrims. They landed on the coast of what's now Massachusetts, and their very first Christmas made them know never mind because they had just arrived a few days before. And so they were busy building houses and they didn't care about Christmas anyway on account of it being a popish holiday, which for them was pretty much the same thing as being a pagan holiday. So they ignored it. One of them wrote this. Monday, the 25th day, we went on shore, some to fell timber, some to saw, some to reeve, and some to carry. And so no man rested that day. Yeah. Although the people that remained on the ship, they had a little beer, but I don't think that's really that festive on account of that's mostly what they drank anyway. You know, big deal. The next year was 1621. We've now arrived at where, where we were headed. 1621, some new colonists had arrived and most of them were unmarried young men. So maybe they were not as serious as they might otherwise have been. You know, they weren't trying to take care of families and whatnot. And also, they weren't that religious because, you know, it was the pilgrims that had come for religious reasons. And and then after that, people started coming because of financial opportunities. But at any rate, they got there. But they were in Plymouth, weren't they? And uh, and a few weeks before this Christmas, they had celebrated a thank there they had celebrated the first thanksgiving where they had roasted deer and corn and oysters and pretty much nothing that we actually eat these days and think it's theirs and there, that was a harvest celebration so that was okay cuz it wasn't religious it was just celebrating food okay so that was okay all right but christmas william bradford was the governor of the colony and so he wrangled these new men to go to work with you know with all the other guys And he writes about this in his journal. And in this journal, he's referring to himself in the third person by his title. (laughs) So don't get confused because he did write this. Quote, on the day called Christmas Day, the governor called them out to work as was used. 
But the most of this new company excused themselves. They said it went against their consciences to work on that day. So the governor told them that if they made it a matter of conscience, he would spare them till they were better informed. So in other words, he thought that the new guys who said that they couldn't go work because of their conscience, their consciences told them not to. He thought that they were accustomed to prayer and meditation on Christmas. And he knew that if they prayed and meditated, then they would understand that they should be like the rest of the pilgrims and not pray and meditate all day on Christmas because it's just another damn day where you do the Lord's work, which in this case means going and felling timber and building houses. But really what had happened was that their consciences had informed them that they should go party down because it was Christmas. And so when Bradford went home for lunch, he discovered that they were playing games in the street. So that was wrong. And that's our crime. Some guys were playing games in the street on Christmas. We're shocked. Shocked, I tell you. So he took the toys away that they were using, you know, whatever they were using to play the games. He took the balls and whatnot. He took that all away. And he told them that if they needed to pray and meditate on the day of Christmas, they could do it in their houses, but they could not play games and party down in the street. That's what he said. I think he said party down. I haven't found that, but I'm sure it was. When Bradford wrote this down, it was 20 years later. And he said that nobody in Plymouth that whole 20 years had attempted to have Christmas after that. There was no more Christmases in Plymouth. I don't know. And also it was more funny than serious. So that's our crime. It really wasn't much one. But what happened later? I have more. So, so, so much for Plymouth. In Boston, observing Christmas was banned in 1659. And if you were caught observing Christmas you were fined five shillings, which is about $50 in our money these days. And that ban continued until 1681 when a new English governor revoked the law. But in general, the American colonies were not big on Christmas. The Quakers also saw Christmas as just another day. The Presbyterians who got to the New World in 1630, the 1630s, they started showing up. They were Scots and Ulster Scots. They didn't have any Christmas services at all until the 18th century in the South. <clears throat> and that's because the South had a higher proportion of the Anglican church there and the Anglicans were celebrating Christmas and the Presbyterians started going over to the Anglican churches on Christmas because they had nice Christmas services. And so the Presbyterians in the South started holding some services, but in New England, and in rural areas, well into the late 18th century, they didn't celebrate Christmas. In the 19th century, they began to mark the day as a holiday, not a religious day, just a holiday. You could play games in the street, I guess, but you couldn't go to church, damn it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I find this all so amusing. And by the 20th century, there was an optional Christmas liturgy although it's still a matter of debate in the Presbyterian church. But the colonies came to include, as I mentioned earlier, Anglican, Lutherans, and even Roman Catholics, all of whom made lots about the holiday. It was the South that widely celebrated Christmas. They decorated with holly, laurel, mistletoe. They had feasting, roast beef and turkey and ham and lots of pie, lots of pie. 
And they had religious Christmas carols, Joy to the World, which was written in 1719, was a big favorite in Virginia. And people gave gifts, but just one gift and you would give it to a child or a servant. It was in one direction, not the other. Your children didn't give you stuff. They did not. Your children did not in the little school that they were attending make little ashtrays out of um, old ketchup bottles. They, they didn't do that. And the Germans, the Germans came in, both the Hessian soldiers in the revolution and German immigrants into Pennsylvania brought the Christmas tree. So that was at the end of the 18th century. That Christmas tree didn't become common until the middle of the 19th century when Queen Victoria married Albert, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. So the German custom of the Christmas tree went into England and then that spilled on over into America because it was trendy, because it was, you know, English. Because by that time, by the middle of the 19th century, the Americans didn't like hate the English quite so much as they had a little earlier. And the Roman Catholics brought the nativity scenes, which St. Francis had started in 1223. And in 1843, Dickens published A Christmas Carol, which everybody thinks established the Christmas customs in England and America, but it didn't because they actually already existed. But it made, it kind of codified them and made them much bigger deal than they were. And St. Nicholas, who became Santa Claus, was pushed first by John Pintard in 1810 because he wanted to tone down Christmas because, as you remember, lots of drinking and carousing. And so he was inventing this use of St. Nicholas so that everybody would behave themselves better. There's this constant trying to make people behave themselves on Christmas. It's like, it's like you just have to go out and, I don't know, beat people up and get drunk or something. I think we still do this. I bet that if we looked I bet we would find out that the arrest rates go up in America on Christmas. Don't you think, Michelle? Don't you think that's true? It's a really similar effort to try to tame down Christmas as what we see with Halloween. Oh, yeah, Halloween. Because, you know, Halloween really is, if it's all about demons and badness, I mean, you can't really make an argument that you should behaving, be behaving yourself for the baby Jesus, can you? But you can with Christmas. And so, you know, no, 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 no. Do not get really drunk and stand on your balcony and start yelling at the neighbors and throwing your Christmas tree ornaments into their yard. You would think really that I'd seen some of this stuff, wouldn't you? Anyway, you shouldn't do that on Christmas because it's all about, as Dickens taught us, and also St. Nicholas, it's all about loving your neighbor and giving things to the poor and not, no, no, getting drunk and screwing around and playing games in the street. No, no, just no. There's this real dichotomy there. You can't you can't make everybody happy at all. In 1823, Clement Moore codified the American Santa Claus because he wrote that poem, which you all know, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." His St. Nicholas had been inspired by the Dutch St. Nicholas, which Pintard's brother-in-law, Washington Irving, had written about in Knickerbocker's History. And Christmas in America became a federal holiday in the States in 1870. That was under President Grant. <laughs> President Ulysses S. Grant after the Civil War. That was wild. That was wild to find out that Christmas has only been a federal holiday in the U.S. for about 150 years. Well, now we're ha having some problems with it because the ACLU has pointed out that having a religious holiday as a federal holiday is a problem in a country we're in. Church and state are separated. But one of the one of the things going on here, I, this I think is pretty obvious, is that although Christmas is about the baby Jesus, 
It is also about a whole lot of other things. It was after the Civil War. And so here's one thing that the South has given us. We now, we now celebrate Christmas, much like the Southerners. We've added some stuff. Also, also, I want to say something about ambrosia. I want to talk about ambrosia because this is totally a sideline, but it does have to do with Christmas. Because when I was very young, going to Christmas dinners in East Texas, always on the table, along with the roast, many, many kinds of roast meats and the several, several pies and many, many kinds of butter beans and things cooked with bacon, there would be ambrosia. And in East Texas, in the 1950s, Ambrosia was made from canned mandarin oranges and canned pineapple and coconut and marshmallows. Little bitty marshmallows. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've had that. Yeah. Oh, had it gone up to the Midwest? (laughs) Yes. Yes. It shows up at, it's not so much around Christmas, although anytime you have a family potluck or a church potluck, somebody's showing up with that. Okay. Well, and so y'all use the, the little marshmallows? Mm-hmm. My aunt used to use colored marshmallows, which I want to tell you makes the ambrosia really more gaudy than it needs to be. But at any rate, and it's held together with something. I think it's sour cream. I don't know. I don't know. I don't care for it. Many people don't. I loved it when I was a kid. I, I, I don't eat it these days, but I want to tell you that that is not the original ambrosia. That <laughs> in East Texas, many of the customs came from places like South Carolina, only they'd been a little bastardized. And that's the same thing with ambrosia because the original ambrosia is from Charleston and it consisted of slices of fresh orange mixed with coconut. Hmm. Period. <laughs> Which is eminently edible and contains no little colored marshmallows. Well, clearly there's some point in which somebody thinks it's a great idea to stick mini marshmallows in everything because they show up in everything. I'm blaming the 1950s, quite frankly. I, I think that that's probably it. I don't think anybody in the 1940s was going, you know, I think we should add marshmallows to these little oranges and bits of coconut. No, it sounds very much. I haven't looked it up. I just have, I'm saying what I know from experience, but I think it was the 1950s and sure as hell was going on in East Texas. I'm just telling you. At any rate, Christmas. So that's my explanation of Christmas in America. Why? I mean, I wanted to put this on the list because I think it's just fascinating that for a not inconsiderable amount of time in both England and and especially in colonial America, Christmas was illegal. Yeah, absolutely illegal. You said it was common knowledge, but it actually wasn't for me. I found out about this fairly recently. I knew, I had always known that Puritans disapproved of Christmas. I didn't know that they had actually used the power of the state to try to make it so that nobody else got to. I thought it was more about peer pressure than actual illegality. But I should have known better because, you know, that's not how the Puritans well, roll. The pilgrims, the pilgrims didn't make it illegal. They just didn't do it. You weren't supposed to be doing it, you know. So that was the peer pressure. No, Bostonians, that it was Boston. Just absolutely wild because it's so not the cultural story that I was told growing up about how 
in these decadent days, Christmas is all commercial. But in that past, in the more spiritual past, people celebrated appropriately and observed Advent. And as far as I can tell, this never happened. A bunch of drinking and screwing around really is Christmas. Always been part of the midwinter celebration of it's really, really cold and we're gonna celebrate the fact that after the solstice, the days will start getting longer and will eventually be warm again. Eventually we'll get to plant some crops and stop having to use just things we were able to put in the cellar, yeah. And we're going to have this party in the middle of winter so that we don't club each other over the head with rocks. Well, actually, there was clubbing over people. I mean, there was a lot of, like, there was there was carousing and having fights. Oh, and yeah. It just was, it, and that's one of the reasons, although the, the Roman Saturnalia was on the 17th of December, not the 25th. It's still the same month. That's one of the reasons that many people go, huh, huh, because <laughs> the Saturnalia was a little licentious too. Well, I mean, I, I understand why the Puritans weren't thrilled because there is all of this bad party behavior, but it really is one thing to look down your nose and say, well, we don't do that. <laughs> and it's another thing to say, and we're going to make it so that you can't either by law. Part of what's going on, and you know, this is this the whole church state separation is not working very well at that point. It, one of the things going on is that neither Christmas nor Easter are celebrated in the Bible. Right. So if you're looking at things very literally, they're not holidays. They're not religious holidays. Yeah, that's true. I didn't actually look very closely at colonial America. I looked. I love colonial. It was so great. I looked at what was going on in in England with the same thing happening at roughly the same time. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I have a ballad from 1647. Mm. Where they're deeply annoyed about the making of Christmas illegal. This is in concert with the riots all through England about give us yes. our damn Christmas back, you flunkies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This ballad is called The World Turned Upside Down. And you can go on YouTube and find different people singing it. But there are other songs by the same name. There's this connection with Hamilton because there's a belief that Cornwallis had his men sing The World Turned Upside Down. Not this song, though. Not the one about Christmas. A different one. Oh yeah, it's one of the class songs. Is it is what is it a is it a Diggers song? Yeah. Yeah, I think Chumba Wumba does that. Yes. A good version. So this one, I love this one because it's so annoyed. <laughs> I love it. It's so peevish. <laughs> I'll read you a little bit of it. There's several verses. Listen to me and you shall hear news hath not been this thousand year. Since Herod, Caesar, and many more, you have never heard the like before. Holy days are despised. New fashions are devised. Old Christmas is kicked out of town. Yet let's be content and the times lament. You see the world turned upside down. I, I just adore the chorus of this thing because it's like, oh, everything sucks. But what are you going to do? And it's still that same theme because one of the things that goes on in the midwinter celebrations is turning things upside down, upside down, the class structures and gender structures. But this is, <laughs> but this is violating the old traditions by making nothing happen. And so that's wrong. But I love this. Yeah, old, in old England, we had fun. And it was holy. It was a holy day when we drank all that stuff. Yeah, there's six 
verses of this about how we would celebrate the nativity and we don't <laughs> understand why they're trying to make this illegal. <laughs> and in England, it's seen as partially a class thing, right? That the elites are saying, we, the working man, are allowed to have this celebration. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because it was a, it not just a religious day, it was a holiday in its in its yes. the sense that everybody got kind of like a day off or um, 12 days if you were one of the people that did 12 days, you know, you'd, you'd be like, you know, drinking for 12 days. Yeah, the, the fourth verse of that is about how the lords and the knights tell us that we're not allowed to to do this. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Um, I don't, if the author of this is known, I don't know it, but it was a published broadside ballad. And well, it makes me really happy to find contemporary sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a contemporary source that tells us, you know, not only do we know, not only do we know that this happened, which, you know, we know from like the historical documents and whatnot, but also people didn't like it. It's no. nice to know that. They it's did not like not. all of England said, you know, we're just tired of Christmas and it's wrong and we're not going to have Christmas anymore. All of England did not do that. No, they're they're annoyed um, for a number of reasons. It's the partying, but there was also a lot of drama at Christmas. Mm, yes, there was. Yeah, and yeah. the Puritans did. The Puritans did not like drama. No, no. The larger part of what I have to share for you, though, is John Taylor. Oh my gosh. Often when we are getting ready to do our recording, you tell me what is it is you found and so I know this going in, but um, I don't know. We're having it be a surprise. I have no idea why John Taylor is a rabbit hole. Holy smokes. I, I went so far into John Taylor. John Taylor is the author of not one, but two defenses of Christmas. He is so annoyed. He wrote in 13, I'm sorry, 1631. So this is before, but the writing's on the wall, the writing's on the wall, as far as he's concerned, that the Puritans are gunning for Christmas. A real war on Christmas. Yes. Yes. So he writes this first pamphlet, The Complaint of Christmas, and it's written in the first person from the point of view of Christmas, this emerging Father Christmas figure who shows up in traceable print for the first time in Ben Jonson. But that's roughly, John John Taylor and Ben Jonson are are contemporaries. And Father Christmas is not ecstatic about how he's being treated by the Puritans. So I wanted to read you a couple of passages because I think think that are particularly lovely. So this is Father Christmas talking? Yes. And in first passage, he is addressing the Puritans in particular. But you, Master Confusion, the Puritan, who are a weathercock, shuttlecock, a right Lacedocian, neither hot nor cold, fit to be cast out of all good society of Christendom, or to be perpetually Amsterdamified into Holland. <laughs> your sincerity being void of verity, your faith unfruitful of good works, your hope innovation, your charity invisible, or like a noun adjective, not to be seen, felt, heard or understood. It's lovely. Yeah, he is um, not pulling any punches. And then this passage I also like. All the liberty and harmless sports with the merry gambols, 
dances, and friskles by which the toiling plowsman and laborer were wont to be recreated and their spirits and hopes revived for the whole twelve months are now extinct and put out of use in such a fashion as if they had never been. Thus are the merry lords of misrule suppressed by the mad lords of bad rule at Westminster. Oh, I love that. Isn't that a marvelous turn of phrase? That is a very good turn of phrase. And this is all about standing up for the working class and letting them have their damn holiday. Yeah. He also writes in 1652, The Vindication of Christmas. So that one, that is the pamphlet he writes after Christmas has been made illegal. And it's similarly trying to advocate for a return to Christmas. John Taylor is a character. Character. He was born in 1578. So he's not a young dude. No. You know, he is 74 years old by the time he is out there writing the vindication of Christmas. He actually doesn't live to see it reinstituted. He dies the next year in 1653. Oh, I'm sorry, because I'm like this. But I wanted to know, does he also have some plays or poems about get off my lawn? (laughs) He he does, actually. (laughs) He's so cranky. He has a whole pamphlet feud. As the um, Civil War is about to break out, he's a royalist. And he gets into it with this other writer back and forth. They have this whole pamphlet war going on. It's He is so awesome. Oh, my gosh. So he had to leave school. He, he has an education through about age 11. So he had to leave, at that, leave school at that point. He was apprenticed as a waterman. So he works as a river taxi. In London, he is, there's only one bridge. So he's a ferryman moving people back and forth across the river. After his apprenticeship in 1596, he is part of the Earl of Essex's fleet. He sees action at the capture of Cadiz. He's on the voyage to the Azores. And he doesn't end up writing about this later, but he does end up writing a lot of travel literature. He is a hoot and a half. Back in London, he becomes a member of the Boatsman's Guild, and he starts to interact with literary types as he's rowing them back and forth across the river. Oh, right. Yeah, before the Puritans come, the theater's on the other side of the river. Right. Yes. Yes. So he is rowing people back and forth across the river and starts to interact with all of these writers. And he becomes part of the guild leadership. He becomes the guild clerk. Much of what we know about the devastating effect of moving the theaters from Southwark in 1612 on the boatmen, because it, it takes a lot of their custom, is from what he had to write about it. He keeps his day job, but becomes a prolific writer of poetry and pamphlets. 150 publications during his lifetime. It's just astonishing how much he writes. I've never heard of him. I'm so excited to now know about John Taylor. He works in several genres, satire, elegies, poetry, opinion essays. He has an opinion about everything, moral exhortations, travel literature. He dubs himself the water poet. Oh, oh, I know. 
It makes me so happy. His education stopped when he was 11. Yeah. And so it isn't just that he's that he's rolling all these theater people back and forth. He must have then also gone and read things because this is clearly the style of someone who knows what writing is supposed to sound like. Yeah, he is spectacularly well-educated, but self-educated largely. He had to leave school because he was he just struggled with Latin. He could not. Latin was where he bailed. So he flunked out because of the Latin. Because mm-hmm. of the Latin. But he does really well for himself as one of, I mean, he's essentially a London cabbie, right? An early London cabbie. Because, and he's chatting up people. He's really good at talking to people. He's a member of the King's Watermen. So he oh. is he is on call for the king. So when the king needs to be ferried up and down the river, he's one of the guys that would get called. There's a set of them that were on call for when the king needed to be transported by the river. That's obviously before 1640. Yeah, because he didn't need any ferrying around after that, for sure. No. John Taylor is the first poet to mention the deaths of Shakespeare and Francis Beaumont in print. I did not know that. It is a poem called In Praise of Hempseed in 1620, which is also wild, 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 because it is the story of how he built and sailed a boat made out of hemp brown paper down the Thames. <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. How do you find these people? How do you find them? And of course he wrote a poem about it, which is in praise of hemp seed. In 1618, my God, in 1618, he walked to Scotland, taking no money or food, charmed his way along, only had to sleep outdoors once. And he did this because he took subscriptions for the book he was going to write about it after the adventure was over. Uh-huh. So he went on the adventure in order to write a book, which he then, while he was on the adventure, got paid for. Yeah, he took pre-orders, basically. And also, apparently, there was, he did, this wasn't his only madcap adventure. He would take pre-orders for the book he was going to write after the madcap adventure and apparently there was a booming business in side bets as to whether he was going to live through the madcap adventure so he would he would get to it he would get to a town or some like house and he would say good wife is it possible to stay in your barn or maybe even in the house and here i'll read you this poem he must have been he must have been entertaining people in some way because you can't just show up on somebody's doorstep and say I'm going to write a book. Would you like to give me some money so I can publish it? We've got to have something to show. He's one of the first credited authors of a palindrome. Oh, really? Lewd did I live and evil did I dwell. Oh, I know that palindrome. He is the creator of an inventor language, Barmudin. <laughs> it's going to make up the Latin. He's just a polymath. He is absolutely wild. He was widely read and known in Stuart, England in 1630 a folio edition. So that's really early. He doesn't die until 1653. In 1630, a folio edition of his collected works is published. He's only the third poet to have that. It's Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and him. He's widely known and read in Stuart, England, but is obscure now. Um, He's mostly known by social historians because he writes so much about everyday life. He has a pamphlet from, I think, 1612, where he talks about the everyday games that people play. And it, you know, card games and board games and games in the street. And it's a really useful resource for social historians. But he gets called... There is one biography from 1994, one full-length biography. He gets called 
a cultural amphibian because he's bridging the gap between the educated elite and the working class. So he has this lovely poem that is long about the joys of clean linen and an ode to laundresses. That's lovely. It's lovely. I... You know, and it's so, it's not an ode to laundresses because they're so cute and they remind you no. of, you know, Rome and, and, and shepherds. It's an ode to laundresses because they are useful. Yes. Now of the lovely, lovely. laundress. Let me read you a couple lines. Now of the lovely laundress whose clean trade is the only cause that linen's cleanly made. Her living is on two extremes relying. She's ever wetting and she's ever drying. As all men die to live and live to die, so does she dry to wash and wash to dry. And it ends with this pretty, it ends with a scolding of people for treating their linen and their laundresses badly. All you man monsters, monstrous linen soilers, you shirt polluting tyrants, you sheet spoilers, robust, rude, rough, rending raga, ragamuffins. Ragamuffin. Remember that your laundress's pains is great, whose labors only keeps you sweet and neat. Consider this that here is writ or said and pay her, not as was the sculler paid. Call not your laundress slut or slabbering queen. It is her slabbering that doth keep thee clean. Nor call her not dry washer in disgrace, for fear she cast the suds into thy face. By her thy linen sweet and cleanly dressed, else thou wouldst stink above ground like a beast. I just love I love the poem about the awesomeness of having clean underwear and shirts and sheets. And then he transitions to, and treat your laundress properly. The respectability, the even nobility of the profession. This man, I know I say this a lot, but really this man deserves a historical novel and or a movie. Oh, for sure. Okay. This is true. This is true. We do, we do say this a lot. But absolutely. Would somebody please write a historical novel? focusing on john what john taylor john taylor John Taylor, the water poet he has there is a biography from 1994 one single full-length biography but this man needs a novel it's actually it's actually of all the times i've said that this is the only one where i'm like hmm i wonder if i want to write that obviously you could have a series because he, there's so many different people that he meets rowing them back and forth. There's a lot of possibility there. He could meet everybody. I mean, he is a polymath. He could turn out that he was also a detective. Mm -hmm. <gasps> he could. He could totally solve mysteries. He totally could because you'd hear in all this stuff. Shakespeare's all upset about something. When did Kit Marlowe die? I can't remember. Is Kit, he, he, but he knows Kit Marlowe too, right? He may. Well, um, let me check because he may have actually been away with the Earl of Essex's Christopher Marlowe. When, let me remind myself of when he dies. Yeah, he probably doesn't doesn't unless he ran into him during his apprenticeship. He would have to he would have to run into him during his apprenticeship because um, Kit Marlowe dies in 1593, and in 1596 he goes off. But he was doing his apprenticeship before that, so he could meet him as a young man. See, so that could get added in. 
And Ben Johnson, then he would he would. Know. Oh, he definitely Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson is kind of a snob, and so he has unkind things to say about John Taylor. But really, who does Ben Johnson have nice things to say about? Drink to me only with thine eyes, and um, I shall pledge with mine. So there's one person, what you know, whoever. Ben Johnson is so grumpy about everything. <laughs> he's, he's fairly grumpy. Yeah, there's a grumpiness about him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and he and he rose the king all around. Yes, he really rubbed shoulders with a lot of people, and I find that his writing um, sometimes kind of you're not entirely certain whether he's being serious or whether he's being funny. Like he has several places that really straddle that line between this is over the top. But I found that his poetry is effective. He gets talked about as if the other writers are kind of laughing up their sleeve at him a little bit because he he has this day job. He can't just quit his job. He writes on the side. It's not how he makes his living. He knows he can't make enough money as a writer. Although after the moving of the theater and the Civil War, when he does come back to London, he is a barman. He he runs a bar. Oh, he can he can be, still be a detective. Yeah, you meet yeah. a lot of people when you're running the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's great. This is this is great. Yeah, I want I want this series. I'm John Taylor, water poet and detective. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to phrase it to to frame it because there could be a lot going on with him. He is such a delightful, delightful character. Did he have a family? No, it's not as far as I know. I did not find anything about him marrying. I like this rabbit hole. It's very nice. I enjoyed finding out about John Taylor. Is that our is that our Christmas? Is that it? That is what I know. I'm so interested in John Taylor. I didn't actually get to check out the biography from the library, but I'm going to go get it. I can't buy it because it's like 140 bucks. But the university library here has it, and I'm going to go check it out so I can read about John Taylor. Read some more about John Taylor. There's a podcast called That Shakespeare Life, and there was an episode about John Taylor with Bernard Cap, the author of the biography. So that was really helpful. But I want to go read the full biography. Yeah. Well, you might show up again, because I was thinking that for another one of the Christmas episodes, we might want to focus on the rioting. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of crimes happening there. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if John Taylor has something to say about that. I'm sure that he's connected in some way. And there were riots in London. They weren't all in Canterbury. Oh, and I wanted to tell you, because you might actually know this person. There was an edition of The Complaint of Christmas that was published every Christmas by a small press that was called the Heart Press that was being run by a professor from the University of California at Berkeley. His name was James Hart, and he was an American literary scholar and professor at UC Berkeley for 54 years. And I thought that it was possible you might know of him because he died in 1990. So he might have been a professor emeritus when you were there. But he and his wife every year published an edition of John Taylor's The Complaint of Christmas and sent it out with, with their Christmas cards. I wanted to send you this because the picture that they have on the front of the cranky Puritan is so cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do, do. You know, I always like to find a fitting illustration for a webpage of, for the podcast. And there's a 19th century painting of Bradford dressing down the guys who've been playing in the snow. Oh. Yeah, so I'll use that. It'll be in public domain. They send out this um, edition of the Complaint of Christmas with a Christmas card that says, May your Christmas leave no complaints. Uh, So this has been 
our discussion of horrible crimes, horrible crimes, I tell you, on Christmas, as done by young men playing games in the snow over in Plymouth. And they were punished by having their toys taken away. Oh, darn. <laughs> we hope you are all well. We hope you are all, all well in celebrating whatever it is you celebrate in merry fashion, unless you don't want merriness, in which case we hope you're not having it and all is well. All is just well. This has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only, you know, with less technology. We can be found on Spotify and Apple and all the places where the podcasts are hanging out. You can reach us at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word, where you can find links to the podcast and show notes and transcriptions. And you can leave comments, which we would love. We'd love to hear from you. And especially if you've got any medieval crimes that you think we should know about. We're coming down to the end of the year. The next time you hear from us, we're going to be in 16th century Spain, where somebody got burned at the stake. Michael Servetus got burned at the stake for heresy. So there will be some deaths next time, as there usually are. But there weren't any this time. Bye. Okay.